You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. Formerly Bulletproof Radio. A state of high performance. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. I made you a promise at the beginning of the year that I was going to tell you what you get out of a show. So you can say right at the beginning, this has my attention, or I'm going to listen to one of the other thousand or so episodes that are available. I just want this hour to be more than worth it for you. And to be perfectly honest, if it's not, then you should do something else, like take a nap, go for a walk, whatever. So high value or nothing, go big or go home. So I asked a guy under the show today who is going to tell you how your ability to imagine the future changes what you do right now, but looking at the past actually doesn't change your behavior right now, at least not for the better. And this in turn teaches you how to manage threats to your future self, how to recognize truths about yourself now and in the future so that you can actually create the version of you that you want. And this comes from a guy who knows a lot about intentional self-transformation. And he's actually a PhD and organizational psychologist, and he's written multiple books on how to fix your mindset, like willpower doesn't work and personality isn't permanent. He's co-authored some of these with my dear friend and mentor and guest on the show, um, who is Dan Sullivan. So you might have seen The Gap and The Gain or Who Not How. So basically, Ben's a prolific author, one of the most uh, read guys on Medium, uh, and a friend. Uh, we've known each other for quite a while. Uh, Dan hasn't been on the show since episode 45. And I think this is your first time, Ben, isn't it, on the show? It is. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, we, 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 we've kind of skipped around uh, from book to book to book to book, and for some reason, here we are. <laughs> so it yeah, just, the, the stars aligned, you know? It's funny because I would have had you on before now because, I mean, we've crossed paths so many times and got to know each other uh, that it's funny. I think I was thinking I had, and, and it sounds weird. Like, Dave, you talk about memory and smart drugs. Yeah, we've got like a lot of episodes here. And if, if I interviewed someone six years ago, I might need a, a cue to remind me of the topic and then it pops in my head. But I'm just thinking I know you well enough that I almost had to have had you on the show. So my bad. Not at all. No, I'm all for timing on things, and this is this is cool. This is a, this, this this will be an interesting conversation. I'm, I'm I'm intrigued. One of the things I like about talking with you is, uh, you know, it's, it it. I guess what I like about talking with you is it's not just you just trying to cater uh, to anyone. You're you're really like trying to get it right. Like there's a really good quote from Brene Brown where she says you're either trying to be right or get it right, and I think that you're one of those people who's trying to get it right, and so. Uh, I am too, and I'm open to um, myself also being very wrong. So I, I like talking to you. It's 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 always fun, stimulating, and it, it takes me places I don't expect to go sometimes. I have hacked my sleep in every way you could imagine, and one of the hacks that's stuck is using a weighted blanket when I sleep. I've been working with Baloo Living for a while now, and I use their weighted blankets for a very specific reason. They're made from only natural cotton on the outside, so they're breathable even in summer. But on the inside, they have thousands of tiny glass microbeads. They're not made out of plastic, there is no hormone disruptor, and there's no lead. This is a clean blanket. The deep pressure of the blanket relaxes my nervous system so I can get better sleep faster and I measure more deep sleep. 
My kids love them too. And now Baloo even makes a mini blanket that's easy to take when you're traveling. If you don't believe me, just try it out. These weighted blankets from Baloo are comfortable and you totally sleep better. Less tossing, less turning, less snoring. It's a huge difference. Go to baloo-living.com, B-A-L-O-O living.com. Use code Dave20. They'll give you 20% off. This really works. You buy it one time, go to sleep like you normally would, and you sleep better. I like talking to you. It's, it's, it's always fun, stimulating, and it, it takes me places I don't expect to go sometimes. Uh, likewise, my friend. Uh, curiosity is important. Um, who is it? I'm I'm actually reading a, another one of David Hawkins' books. Um, mm. You know the the Eye of the Eye, a pretty well known personal development, spiritual sort oh, of. Oh, I love author. David Hawkins. Oh, I, yeah. I love his work personally. His stuff is great. I've I've used it for years, and some of his some of his stuff around forgiveness is actually built into the process for resetting it. Forty years of Zen, and when I I look at this book, um, he was just recently talking about how the desire to be right is actually backed by anger. So to, if your desire is to be right, that means you necessarily have to make the other person wrong. And that the more ardently you argue your thing, it's actually an expression of anger, which is itself an expression of fear. So basically, if you're afraid of being wrong, it's because everyone knows that if you're wrong, then mommy and daddy won't love you, and then no one will feed you, and then the wolves will eat you and you'll die. So if you could just drop that fear, maybe you could be curious and you could be interested in, you know, maybe getting it right. And I swear I would go vegan if it actually worked. <laughs> I would also be a gravitarian if it actually worked. And I have tried them extensively. So I know you experiment. I know you test. Yeah. <laughs> like my commitment to myself and the world is I just want to do what works and I'm going to share it. Right. And I'll try to know why it works for me because maybe I'm different than you, but it's that curiosity that I think motivates you. That's why we always have fun is you're like, like okay, I, I really do want to get it right. And your studies of organizational psychology and self-transformation always lead you to write really interesting books and self-introspection. I mean, what is biohacking, right? Like change the environment inside yourself and around yourself to have full control well, you got to measure the environment. It means having awareness of it. And that's where your book comes in. And I want to know, as kind of as we open up the interview, what evidence is there that us humans are driven by our view of the future rather than the past? Like, like where's your science? Yeah, I like that. Um, so Freud would argue we're mostly the byproduct of our childhood. Um, yep. And for a lot of psychologists, pre-neuroscience, they would have argued similar things. One of the only ones who was providing a counter-argument was Frankel. Frankel's mm -hmm. whole theory was the opposite. He felt like a human's well-being and their psychology was based on their, their views of their own future. And so he talks heavily about this in Man's Search for Meaning, that if a person lost a sense of hope in their future or a goal, a sense of purpose in the present became meaningless. And so he specifically said in man's search for meaning that everything they did, like those who were trying to help those in the concentration camps, he said any attempt to alleviate the pathological effects of the concentration camp had to point out to the, to the victim a future goal to which they could actually like work towards because without that, they lost their spiritual hold. So Frankel was unique in that sense. Um, and he believed that a person's well-being was based on having meanings to fulfill in the future. 
um, nowadays with uh, neuroscience, you know, the brain is essentially considered a prediction machine. So what the brain is yep. always doing is predicting what's going to happen and learning is essentially just updating its sense of predictions. And so the brain is always anticipating the future. Um, in terms of positive psychology, there was a paper that Baumeister, Roy Baumeister, who I know you're aware of his work, and Marty Seligman wrote. It's called navigating. It's actually it's called driven by the past or navigating into the future. And right. it's all about a concept called prospection. And prospection is a topic that's um, heavily studied these days in positive psychology. And what it is, is it, it's basically the idea that as humans, we spend about two thirds of our thinking time thinking about the future. We think about our prospects. We think about options. Uh, we think about what's going on. We think about potentials. We think about decisions we're going to make. We spend a, a lot more time thinking about the future than we do thinking about the past. Um, and prospection is based on what's called a teleological view of the world. Teleology being um, a concept that all things are driven by an end, that the end is actually the cause of the behavior. And so from a teleological standpoint, every human behavior is goal-driven. Uh, and a lot of psychologists actually believe that. So like if I pick up my pen, it's because I had the goal to do it. If I drop it, it was because I had the goal to do it. So hum psychologists um, define goals differently than the average person. The average person might think of a goal as like, something I'm trying to achieve. But if I actually just get up and walk to the bathroom, it's because there was a goal to do it. I, the, the end may have been to go to the bathroom. So from that standpoint, we're all being driven by goals. Um, I would argue that a lot of those goals are unconscious or triggered by the environment or fed to us by the environment. Um, and so this book, what, in a what's lot an of, unconscious yeah. goal, like, that doesn't even make sense. <laughs> like it's, isn't a goal conscious. If it's unconscious, it's a behavior, not a goal. Well, so this is what I'm saying is that if it becomes a goal even for a moment. So like it's the okay. idea of between, it's like, it's like that idea of between stimulus and response. So I may be triggered to hop on social media for some reason or another. So in other words, the environment fed me the goal. Uh, and I then maybe a, a, a automatically do it. So as an example, if I leave my phone on like notifications on and I'm sitting here in flow trying to work and all of a sudden I hear a ding, my environment just fed me a goal. I, and I might, I might out of habit or instinct just go for it. Um, and so a lot of the things we pursue often are just done because they're triggered. But, 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 but for a moment, it became something that you were making the decision to do. So like I asked my wife as an example. She was wearing a baseball hat. I said, was it your goal to put on that hat? And she said, no. She said, I was cleaning the house and I just threw it on. And I said, well, if it wasn't, if you, but if you didn't want it on, would it, would it be on? If you absolutely didn't want it on, was there a moment in time when you saw it and you picked it up and you put it on your head? So even if for a moment she grabbed it and did it, for a moment she decided to do it. Does that, that's kind of what I'm saying here. Is, is uh, that, okay, got it. So for a moment you said versus like the, the flinch game that uh, Alan, my 12 year old and I played for about a year there where you, you go, boo. And then if the person flinches, you punch him in the arm. We got that from Stand By Me, the, the, the movie. Uh, and so that's an involuntary thing that wasn't a goal. That's some other system. That's not what we're talking about. No, I wouldn't say. Okay. Yeah, I would have said that was no. Yeah, I think that's a really good distinction. So, so you had a flighty, uh, uh, not, uh, not flighty, uh, a, a, a fleeting. That's what I'm looking for. So you had a fleeting moment of desire or goal to put the hat on so you did it and you kind of flushed the cash and then you just went on okay 
And, and you're that's, saying, that's, that's, that's what often triggered behavior leads to is you get triggered by the environment. And then right. for a moment, you decide to redirect yourself towards that action. <laughs> Got it. When, one of my, in fact, my all time favorite brain book is one that almost no one read. And I can't get the author to come on the show because he's actually a Silicon Valley executive, um, the guy who invented Palm Pilot, which was the first handheld organizer that was basically the great grandfather of the iPhone. And um, it turns out I worked at the same company with him uh, early on in my tech career. Like my first big tech job was in the same company. And the book is called On Intelligence. And he argues that our our brains are very provably with math prediction machines of a microsecond in the future. So to even move your hand, you predict that. And then the brain ignores everything, unless when you move your hand, it hits something you didn't expect. And then you would notice, but otherwise it's entirely invisible. And I, I find that to be the most convincing and awesome uh, and workable solution for how a lot of distributed system stuff in the body works. But what I want to know from your book and from all of your deep study, I mean, you read these guys, you're citing them from left and right, which I love about you. You've got like that database in your brain. So how far in the future do we have to have a view in order for it to change who we are today? Is this like, here's my five-year goal or I want to feed a billion people, which might be an ego goal. I don't really know, but uh, you know, it, how, how big, how far out? I mean, Dan Sullivan is giant and, you know, way in the future, but, and he's a mentor for both of us, but where, what's your take on this now? Yeah, I, I, I like the question a lot. Um, I'm going to share a quote to start, and then I'm going to share with you some of the interesting research from Hal Hirschfeld, who's one of the top guys. He's at UCLA, and I'm going to talk about Daniel Gilbert's work, who you may be uh, aware of Gilbert. He's been at Harvard for a long time talking about future I, self for I, a really long Hirschfeld, time. I know. I don't recall Gilbert, but I might. Yeah, Gilbert gave a mainstream, uh, sorry, a main stage TED Talk in 2014 called The Psychology of Your Future Self, laid out a lot mm. of really interesting stuff. Um, Hirschfeld's been studying it for a really long time at UCLA. So this is the quote. I'll, I'll start with the quote, and then I'll share with you okay. some of what Hirschfeld and Gilbert have found. So the quote comes from Robert Greene's book, The 50th Law, which I actually really like. It's surprisingly yeah. a really good book. He, he's um, one of my favorite authors. So here's the quote. By our nature as rational, conscious creatures, we cannot help but think of the future. But most people out of fear limit their views of the future to a narrow range. Thoughts of tomorrow, a few weeks ahead, perhaps a vague plan for the months to come. We are generally dealing with so many immediate battles that it is hard for us to lift our gaze above the moment. It is a lot of power, however, that the further and deeper we contemplate the future, the greater our capacity to shape it to our desires. So I think they say a lot in this, you know, that most of us are mm -hmm. dealing with too many immediate battles. Uh, it's that whole urgent versus important thing. It also taps a lot into dopamine, just that we're often driven by short-term dopamine hits. Um, so this is what Hirschfeld's found. Hirschfeld talks a lot about how the quality of your decisions in the present is based on what he calls your connection to your future self. Hirschfeld talks a lot about how the quality of your decisions in the present is based on what he calls your connection to your future self. And he's spent a lot of time studying this in different capacities. Specific, uh, by the way, connection to long-term future self which he argues is very right. difficult for people to do for a few reasons. One right. is he actually believes humans are not evolved to do it. Um, if you think okay. about, if you think about like, hum like human, human beings thousands of years ago, 
most of what they were trying to do was like get food for the week for the month, you know, or right. they were avoiding, avoiding being eaten. So like right. to, to plan for a retirement nest egg for 30 years, like for age 65 is pretty foreign. Um, especially because life expectancy even 150 years ago was 39 years old. So to plan for a future that's 30, 40 years into the future, Hirschfield does not believe that mass human beings are, uh, are evolved to do that effectively, which is why often we set up our future selves for disaster. Connecting with your future self long-term 20, 30 years into the future is very difficult. He yeah. also combines that with the pull of the present. And there's a lot of research and even a great TED talk by uh, Daniel Goldstein, who's a psychologist called the battle between your present and your future self. And the argument is the present self usually wins because short-term rewards are immediate. Whereas to invest in your long-term future self, it's a pretty hard proposition for most people to invest for delayed gratification. Um, that's, that's pretty tough. So Hirschfeld's whole research has been, how do you get connected to your longer-term future self and what happens when you do? Uh, and so he initially talks about how the first step of developing a relationship with your future self or getting connected to them and by the way, he's found, and there's lots of research on this, if you are connected to your long-term future self, obviously you're going to invest more in your future self, invest more financially, save more money, make way better financial decisions, way better health decisions, um, and you'll do a lot less stupid behaviors like getting, you know, like, like criminal acts and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, essentially, the quality of your connection to your long-term like, like future self. Like be a politician, self, basically. Yeah, exactly. Why would you do that? <laughs> so, the, so the quality of connection with your future self, the better decisions, more intentional decisions. And that's actually what uh, Aristotle called intelligence was intentionality. And so he, he based everything on what he called final cause, which is very similar. But uh, yeah, so he said that to get connected to your future self, you've got to have, you've got to start to have empathy towards this person. You've got to realize they're a very different person than you are today. Even in five years from now, your future self is going to be different from who you are today. They're going to see the world differently. They're not going to, they're not going to value the same things you do. They're going to have different goals. Uh, and so you got to start to have empathy for them and recognize they are a different person, totally different mm. person. Uh, and that's actually one of the things that um, Daniel Gilbert found. Um, have you ever heard of the concept, the end of history illusion? I do not recall that, no. I really like this idea of having empathy for your future self because a lot of the a lot of the training that I do with people is actually having empathy for their past self around forgiveness. That's big, hundred percent. But interesting on your future self. I want to know more about that, and then I want to know more about the other thing that whose name I already forgot. Uh, yeah, yeah, Daniel Gilbert. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll give Gilbert's idea because it connects, and then I'll explain okay, the, cool. empathy, the empathy piece. So, so, and this is all in Gilbert's main stage TED talk. He writes a little bit about this in his book, Stumbling Upon Happiness, because Gilbert's been... Oh, has been, that's his book? I have that book. Okay, I got it now. Yeah, Thank and you. that whole book is about how people, uh, ir they predict incorrectly what will make them happy in the future. People right. are really bad at predicting like the Like money and fame <laughs> yeah. and all yeah, that yeah, yeah. stuff. I did that in my 20s, right? It's, it's kind of a waste. Okay, I, I got you now. Yeah, so what, what Gilbert does is really interesting. So he asks people, are you the same person you were 10 years ago? And then he, he really asks them to go deep. Like, let's talk about the type of music you listen to. Let's talk about your habits. Let's talk about your interests. Let's talk about your, your friend group. Um, let's talk about your income. Let's talk about your environment. Um, and he gets them to go really deep and he helps them realize, okay, from a mental model perspective, you're, pr you're pretty different from who you were 10 years ago. From, like, you're actually very different from who you were 10 years ago. And actually, even if you measured it closer a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, um, there's, there's, there's quite a bit of differences. But then he invites them to look at their future self. 
So after recognizing, appreciating, okay, I'm pretty different than I was 10 years ago. Um, by the way, me 10 years ago was living in my parents' base, my, my in-laws' basement, just got rejected by 15 grad schools, um, didn't know where I was going to go to school, didn't think I was going to be an entrepreneur, uh, a lot of funny things. But it, by then, the way, it, it's been awesome to watch your evolution in Genius Network and with Dan Sullivan and all just over the time. You've, you've really shifted so much. When you, you said think that so? Years you ago, think like so? 10 years ago? No, I really do think so. You said 10 years ago? Well, so, so, so nine years ago, I didn't join Genius Network. I joined Genius Network in 2017. So this was okay, during my PhD program. So that's five years ago. That's, that's 50% yeah. of the time we're talking about. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So five, four years ago, my first book, Willpower Doesn't Work, came out. Um, but nine so so 10 years ago in 2012 i had re actually i got married 10 years ago in two months so we got married in, on september 1st 2012 um and we were living in her parents basement i just gotten rejected by 15 grad schools no clue i wanted to be i was thinking i'd probably be a therapist um but what was funny was and i'll get back to hirschfield and empathy but um one year after our our wedding, like so on in 2013, we made a nine year time capsule for our future selves. We filmed videos of ourselves talking about where we thought we'd be on our 10 year anniversary. We wrote letters about where we thought we'd be. And then we put the like the flash drive and the letters into a into a mason jar and we stuck it on our shelf and we're going to open it in two months. And I think it's going to be wow. hilarious. I think, I think it's going to be hilarious. But here's a funny, just a funny thought experiment, is if my former self nine years ago who wrote that letter and spoke could come to talk to me, who is his future self, uh, he would then find out that I got a PhD in organizational psychology. I now have six kids. I have a 14-year-old, 13-year-old, 10-year-old like that we adopted from the foster system. I am an entrepreneur. Like uh, uh, he would have, he would be stunt baffled because um, I, I know my former self thought my life was going in different directions. Yeah. Um, so I only bring that up because I actually invite everyone who's listening to this to do a time capsule of some some form. Uh, and I actually share the story in the book about Mr. Beast, the the YouTuber who did like multiple time capsules and published them on his YouTube, and they're fascinating to watch. Back when he was a seventeen year old. Um, but the only reason I bring all this up is. By looking back at your former self and appreciating how different you were, people can do that. But when Daniel, when Daniel Gilbert asks people after he's done this for them, what about your future self? Do you th who do you think your future self will be in 10 years? This is a, this is a phenomenon in psychology. Even after a, a pro, like appreciating how much you've changed in the past, people vastly underpredict that they're going to change it all in the future. It is very mm -hmm. common for most people to think that their future self, even 10, 15 years into the future, is going to be primarily the same person they are today. That phenomenon is called the end of history illusion. Um, just the belief that you're not going to change much in the future. Um, but Gilbert's research, Gilbert's research actually shows that 18-year-olds predict changing in the future as much as people who are 50-year-old actually do. And he talks about that. Kids who are in their eight, like teenage years think that they're not going to change much in the future. <laughs> it, it's totally funny. You, you're so right. A, a lot of, a lot of what I, I've done over the past 10 years of content is like stuff I wish I would have known when I was 18 because it would have just prevented so much suffering and just stupid decision-making and, and all of that. The problem is when I was 18, I probably would have been too arrogant and stupid to listen to me. So, so how do you... The 18-year-old version of you might not have been paying attention to the Dave uh, Asprey podcast. I was a huge dick, I admit it. <laughs> I didn't even know it. Um, 
so how do we solve that same problem? Because like, what if everyone listening, including me and you, like, what if we're actually huge dicks and we don't know it just like I didn't when I was 18. So we're not going to listen to our future self anyway. Like how does contemplating the future self actually change anything? It, it changes a lot. Okay. I, it, it actually helps a lot. Number one, first off, and the point of all of this conversation is the appreciation, the full-on appreciation. Your future self is is more different than you predict they will be. All of us mm. are under predicting how different our future self will be. And connecting that to Hirschfield, you seeing your future self as a different person and having empathy towards them allows you to start making different decisions now because you start to take into account who they are, what they want, where they're at, and that it is different. They probably want something totally different than you. And so one thing you can do, and, and Hirschfeld talks also about learning how to develop a friendship with your future self so that you start, if someone's really your friend, you don't see like going downtown to pick them up because their car like got a flat. You don't see making sacrifices for someone you really value as a big deal. Whereas if it's someone you don't really like, you, you get put off. And so he talks about how to actually develops a friendship in such a way that you want to make sacrifices for them. I, I, I don't like the word sacrifice, and so I prefer the word investment. Um, but here's one example, and it actually goes right back to Frankel. Frankel, one of the quotes he talks about in Man's Search for Meaning is he says that you should live as though you already lived this moment once and you acted as poorly as you're about to act and, and that you had to face your consequences and, and, and imagine that this moment is now the past and that you can come back having lived it once and try again. So that's, that's, so, so what I do to apply this is I, like one day I was driving home from work and I often come home from work and I'm fried and I, I don't, I just zone out and I got kids who want to hang out and I'm just like, whatever, you know, that's me some days, admittedly, of course. Sure. Um, but I thought, but I thought about it and I said, what if my future self 20 years from now, who's now like you know, all of my kids are gone. They're all like at school or doing whatever they want. It's like, what if future me 20 years from now could come back and sit in my shoes and just chill in my life for the rest of the afternoon? Got to come back and play with the kids when they're like three years old and chill. And so I just played with that for me. I just thought, I'm just going to just pretend like I'm my future self and I got to come back and kick it. Come and and I walked inside my house, totally a mess because I got all these kids. And I, rather than being upset, I just thought it was freaking cool. I'm like, holy cow. Like, it's like going back in the twilight zone. Like, I, I and, and uh, I, what it allowed me to do was, first off, I realized that a lot of the things I get upset about are irrelevant. And, and you know, and, and it just made me way more interested in my kids. I'm like, holy cow. Like, I wanted to talk to my 14-year-old son, Caleb, and see what was interested in him rather than just like, telling them go do the chores. It's like, no, I wanted to like, you know, if my, uh, you know, if my future self 20 years into the future could come back and just talk to him, what would he say? You know, and you could say the same thing about yourself, but I think you can use it. You don't have to go 20 years, but you can think, how would my future self handle this? Or what would my future self want me to do? Um, there's a lot more in-depthness about this that I think is useful. Um, it's the idea of like, once you actually imagine your goal, whatever it is, your future self, where you want to be specifically, you actually use that to start designing your behavior now. Um, you know, you actually think from the goal rather than to the goal. So you, you can use this to be more present. You can do this to be more contemplative, more thoughtful, make better decisions, maybe value uh, your life more. That's actually one of the interesting things is, is that your future self views your current situation enormously more valuable than you do because there's massive implications of what you do now. Um, but you can also just use it to better strategize, better better behave. Okay. 
You talk about threats to your future self, like things that could could take you out on your way of visualizing this in in the book. And the threat number one is you got to have hope in your future. And, and you say it's even more important in trauma. So it it's not that you don't have freedom, but if you don't have purpose and meaning, that's the threat. So I've talked to so many people, especially under 35, who just went through, you know, two years of social isolation and, um, you know, especially if you're under 25, right, where that purpose and meaning, like, look, you know, I, I'm in debt, there's not a career prospect, um, you know, the world's collapsing, I've been brainwashed into thinking, you know, that um, basically I will be drowned under the ocean in the next two years and, like, there's there's a lot of doom and gloom that comes from the media. In fact, I would argue the media's main function now is to remove purpose and meaning, especially from young people. So, okay, if that's a big threat and it's actually happening, what do you what do you recommend for people who are saying, you know, the future looks bleak right now? I think that you hit it on the head hard as far as um, the media's major goal. Obviously, if it bleeds, it leads. Um, so there's a lot of really interesting research on hope. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. What do you what do you recommend for people who are saying, you know, the future looks bleak right now? I think that you hit it on the head hard as far as um, the media's major goal. Obviously, if it bleeds, it leads. Um, so there's a lot of really interesting research on hope. Um, and Dr. Charles Schneider, who's basically, he, he developed hope theory he spent most of his, I think he's passed now, but he, he, he laid a lot of the groundwork for now re- research for people like Dr. Duckworth, Angela Duckworth and stuff. A lot of her work on grit is built on the foundation of hope. She even acknowledges that hope gets you started and hope sustains you. You can't have grit without hope. You can't have motivation without hope. Why be, mo- you couldn't be motivated towards something if you had no hope in its eventuation. Um, so hope is a fundamental human need like even i like seth godin's quote that he says without hope we wither and perish and 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 i've already hit frankel pretty hard so i won't go go down that path too much further although he he does provide the antidote but one of the things that schneider did was he broke people and students into categories high hope versus low hope people and you can look at the research on this really interesting um but some of the core differences is, is high hope people have very specific goals. Actually, and just to give it to break it down, like they've they've developed hope essentially has three core um, factors. Factor number one is to have like a high hope person would have specific goals, uh, and hope and optimism are actually two different things. Um, yeah, o- optimism is a more general positive sense towards the future, whereas hope is actually a lot more specific. So hope is three things. Hope is a goal. specific goal. 
The second one is what they call pathways thinking, which is where um, you you find and generate multiple pathways to your goal. So a high hope person, if they're working towards their goal and they hit a roadblock, they use that as feedback to find different avenues. Whereas a low hope person, if they hit a, a like a wall, um, they just disengage and then ultimately they keep trying the same thing over and over and over again and get no results. They don't learn from their experience. And so it's the uh, Einstein insanity thing. Um, they don't, they're not high on pathways thinking, ultimately right. finding and strategizing. The third aspect of hope is just agency, what, what psychologists would call agency thinking, which is essentially a similar to what psychologists would call an internal locus of control. Like the, you believe you have choice, you have action that you, that you can exercise some form of free will towards your goals, or you can learn and figure out pathways. Um, so I think it's just important to first off, appreciate the power of hope that it is essential. Um, did you ever read the book zero to one by, uh, by Peter Thiel? Yeah. Yeah. A while ago. The uh, only reason I, I bring this up is because I uh, think one of the most interesting things in that book is his framework about the future. Uh, he yeah. talks about how there's four attitudes about the future. Either you have like a, a definite optimism, you know, which is what he believed America was. We're going to go to the moon. Definite yeah. optimism, meaning you have a positive view of the future and it's definite, meaning you actually have goals. Indefinite optimism, meaning you believe the future is good, but you have no idea what it is. Pessimism, definite pessimism, and then indefinite. The reason I think that that's important in hitting exactly what you're saying is it's actually quite obvious when you think about it that whatever view you have of the future is going to determine who you are in the present. So if you have totally pessimistic views of the future, it's going to impact who you're being in the present. So you're saying that Peter Thiel had that specific, uh, like, positive view of the future. Uh, and that's what let him do a lot of Peter what Peter Thiel pushes for a definite optimism. He says yeah. the other three views are ultimately negative. Mm, I, I like that. I uh, little, little trivia there. He was the first guy ever to offer to invest in Bulletproof. Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I met him uh, years ago at the Presidio. And he's like, all you have to do is put a bulletproof coffee shop near my office or my house. And, and I'm like, Peter, there's no foot traffic at your office here. I think, <laughs> like it will go out of business, but I really want to do a deal. He was just, just a really fascinating human being. So I, uh, I'll have to hang out with them again sometime. It was, it was fantastic. But I, I always remember that meeting cause it was just so like, what? Like Peter Thiel, huh? So, I mean, that's a pretty, that's pretty, yeah, that's yeah. pretty epic. Um, do you care if I read you a direct quote from Frankel? Because oh, is it I Frankel? Think, yeah, I was thinking we'd be, we'd do more Teal, but yeah, do a Frankel. Well, well, I just like Teal's, um, Teal has an insanely good quote that I actually lay out in here. He just mostly talks about the difference between indefinite attitudes and definite attitudes about mm-hmm. the future. Okay. And he, and he, and he talks about how we've really shifted to a place where we're, we, we, we celebrate indefinite attitudes. We celebrate not knowing what's going to happen. We celebrate not being definite. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so we more focus on the process rather than on the purpose. And he pushes people in that book to be more purposeful, to have yeah. convictions. Like he said, if you, he says, if you, if you're purposeful, you have firm convictions and you stand for those convictions. And, and he thinks we've led, we've gone down this way of celebrating, not, you know, essentially what he would call an indefinite optimism. Although I think that American culture right now has shifted more toward an indefinite pessimism. I think it's pretty, it's pretty clear that a lot of people have uh, pessimistic views of the future. And so when they have pessimistic views of the future, they're less likely to invest in their future self because they don't think they have any control over what's going to happen anyways. Um, But this is the Frankel quote that I think was is pretty much my answer to your question, uh, which was to all these people who just came out of the pandemic. Um, I think Frankl, the only reason I love Frankl is because he was, from my standpoint, in such an 
a, a more isolated context. I think he had less, uh, like, I, I think about agency and contextual form. We all have contextual agency. Obviously, the context is inside, but it's also outside. And I think that we still have insane freedoms, uh, despite the fact that we do have a crazy media system feeding us uh, hope-destroying media and stuff like that. But this is basically what Frankel said directly. He said, um, any attempt at fighting the camp's pathological influence on the prisoner. So any, sorry, any attempt at fighting the camp's pathological influence on the prisoner by therapeutic methods had to aim at giving him inner strength by pointing out to him a future goal to which he could look forward. Instinctively, some of the prisoners attempted to find one of their own. It is a peculiarity of man that he can only live by looking to the future. And this is his salvation in the most difficult moments of his existence. So Frankl, mm -hmm. he, he was not talking about a broad, random future. He was talking about what is the most absolutely crucial, most important thing that if you like that, that you can do with your life right now that gives your life meaning? Essentially, he was asking, what is the future that's strong enough to sustain you through this? To give you, you know, and that's why he would always quote Nietzsche, you know, he who has a why that's strong enough can bear anyhow. Let me ask you this. Do you find it easy now at this point in your life to think of that definitive future positively because so many people come in and they're they're doing neurofeedback and it takes like two or three days sometimes for someone to figure out their purpose and, and that's a part of this if you don't know your purpose what's your specific goal that's within the purpose and also can you just like close your eyes snap your finger and be like ah there's my specific goal or do you take days of contemplation to do it i think it's a complete drafting process that's never ending so like for me, like, and by, by specific purpose, like for Frankel, and he literally lays it out in the book, his purpose was to get out of the camp so that he could rewrite his book that was stolen from him and shredded. Like he was working on his first book, which was called The Doctor and the Soul. And so he said in the book, my desire to get out of the camp and rewrite my book kept me alive. Like pretty much that's what he wow. said. So, so, um, the specific goal could be anything. Like for me, as an example, I grew up, my father was a drug addict. He was a meth addict. There were meth, crazy weird people throughout my house. And my friends and I would be playing World of Warcraft in one room. And my dad would be like doing weird stuff, crazy stuff with odd people in the next room. Wow. Um, and, and, and it was a really chaotic environment. And I was, I, I grew up like, it felt like the walls were caving in because things just got weird. I barely graduated high school, but I actually did have a goal. Uh, in my case, it was actually to serve a church mission. Um, and so like the, the only reason I bring that up is because had I not had that, and I almost gave that up, but, the, but because I had that, I actually graduated high school because I knew if I wanted to go on that church mission, I needed to be a high school graduate. And so I kept going to school, even though I missed like 50% of my classes and had to do all sorts of community service, but I graduated. But the only reason I did was because I thought I might want to go on that. Um, and that was the only reason I didn't get involved in a lot of the drugs and other things that were around me is just because I thought I might have this thing I wanted. And so that was my specific goal at that time. That, that purpose gave me some form of North Star to navigate the crap around me and and I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have graduated high school. My brother didn't. My brother ended up getting into the, into all sorts of crazy drugs, tried to join the military, got kicked out. Um, and so I only use that as an example to say, what's something, what's something specific that's worth, 
uh, worth working towards. Because if you don't have something specific, and that's why he literally says, this is their salvation in the most difficult moments of their life, because you have something meaningful to work towards to actually like have your brain work on. You know, my son, Caleb, as an example, he's 14. He's really into tennis. And so because he has goals around tennis, then he doesn't have, like if you have nothing, Frankel says you lose your spiritual hold and you just mentally and physically decay. And so if you have nothing to work towards or to like deliberately practice on or to stretch yourself on, um, then you almost have no hold of your mind. And you, you honestly do become kind of a ping pong ball uh, just to all of the dopamine hits around. So I do think just choose something that you can work on, even if it's just for a year. It could be learn Spanish. Honestly, like pick something that you feel is useful that you could work on and be deliberate towards, deliberately practice on, stretch yourself on, imagine a future self on. Uh, I do think it's important though when you start to build some confidence because confidence really allows you to have more imagination and confidence takes time to build. Confidence is the byproduct of past performance. But if if you make even a little bit of progress, you start to build confidence. Um, you can really start to stretch out your future self. I mean, for me, as an example, I like to, I first recognize my future self is totally different from my current self. Albert Einstein said imagination is more important than knowledge. I mm-hmm. know my future self can have totally different skill sets, totally different knowledge bases, totally different personality even than my current self. And so that lends to a growth mindset fundamentally. You know that your current self is very limited. Your current self is, you're going to be different in a day, a week, a month. And so you don't have to try to be right. Back to the Brene, you can just try to get it right. Um, fixed mindsets, essentially trying to prove your current, <laughs> your current ability. But if you don't, if you know that your future self could be massively different, then you, don't, you no longer need to prove yourself. You can have massive compassion towards your current self. Uh, you can have massive, uh, you can give massive grace to the dumpster fire that your life may be. Um, and my life is often a dumpster fire, but the great part is, is that my future self's different. So even now today with all of your success and all you're saying your life is often a dumpster fire. Yeah. Isn't yours sometimes? Uh, sure. Quite frequently. But, but what I, what I'm questioning is how much ignoring of the dumpster fire do you do because you're being Pollyanna about your future self? And I get to ask you these questions. You just wrote a book about this. So I'm going to ask you the hard questions, right? You can ask me. I want, I, that's why I actually love talking to you, Davis, because I'm not going to get hard questions on 90% of the podcasts I'm on. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm not looking to be mean or anything. I, I'm just like, okay, so maybe you should like put out some of that dumpster fire, my friend. Well, right? you and do. Like, you do. Okay. So, so tell me more about how you manage this. Because I'm, I'm assuming you're a master here, and you actually are. You've studied deeply on this, and you've managed to resynthesize it in a new way. So then, I love seeing how someone who's mastered a set of information. I don't think I've mastered this, but um, enough to write a book. I, I, you and I both know how much it takes to write a, a book that's worth reading. It, it, it takes a certain level of mastery. It just does in order to organize it. You have to know it well enough to frame it, and that's one of the reasons I write books is because it makes me have to know it that well. But yeah. I suspect you're the same. So how do you apply this, you who knows way more than the vast majority of people but doesn't self-identify as a master? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I, I feel like the present self is always in a state of flux. Um, like, like one example being like when I was writing the book, I, I'm actually writing a book right now as an example. And way behind deadline, we've had to push it back. And it's not looking good. So we could call this project a dumpster fire right now. 
Um, but like, so every the, book that's ever been published has been a dumpster fire before it got yeah, published. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, my life situation is in a much more stable place than it was a year ago, three years ago, five years ago. But I still deal with so many situations um, that seem way above my head. Um, in fact, that's really how I view deliberate practice is failing towards your future self. Um, Josh Waitzkin calls that investment and loss. So like as a father, we have kids that we adopted, like a lot of emotional challenges, a lot of, lot of issues. And me and my wife, uh, often not emotionally equipped to handle those situations. Right. So we could, we, we could call this a challenging situation or a situation where we're, we're in the messy middle. Um, and so one, one important thing is just if I have completely pessimistic views about my future with my kids or, or myself as a father, I won't even consider trying to learn how to handle it and deliberately practicing towards it. Instead, I will go to an avoidance mindset and I'll just numb myself because it's so, so hard to deal with. But because is that, is I have that still a world of Warcraft addiction or some other one. No, now I just watch YouTube videos, usually oh. skate videos or, or ESPN. <laughs> there you go. All right. If you guys want to know, or I'll, yeah, if, if you guys want to know, <laughs> um, but that's really what you do is you, if you, if you don't have confidence or, or if you don't have hope or if you're just not committed, um, then you ultimately just disengage. By the way, the psychological definition of identity is what you're most committed to. Uh, whatever you're most committed to is your, is is your identity. And so I think a lot of, a lot of solving the dumpster fire is getting your identity really committed to whatever it is you want to do so that you can start working on it from a more committed state. But I think I, I, one is first off, I'm not a perfectionist. Um, I'm very okay with being in a messy situation because I know that tomorrow things could be better and probably will be. Um, because my future self will be different. And so I give myself a lot of grace. I have no, I actually don't deal with perfectionism. Um, but I, I deal with what, perfectionism all the time in others. I use pepper spray for it. It works great. You do pepper spray yeah. just smooths it out. Whenever they're a perfectionist, you just spray them a little bit and they stop complaining about their perfectionism. It's it's, you should try it. So you could either connect with your future self or just use pepper spray. Yeah, <laughs> and so you have to check for nightshade sensitivity before you do it. Just to be, I nice. would, I would use both, but I would love pepper spray. That sounds like what, what, what else does it do? <laughs> it's good for parenting as well. I hear I haven't tried it yet, but I've been tempted a few times. Okay. That's all I can say. <laughs> um, I think just work on it. You know, I think work on it with the kids. Seriously. Like yeah. that's, that's what we do. Um, we actually just took a, a six week trip in Europe and I, yeah, I was pretty, I was pretty, I was pretty blown away at, um, some of the ahas that happened. It kind of reminds me of sometimes you have to have a breakdown to have a breakthrough. Like while we were traveling, there were some really dark moments, but there was a moment when my daughter, who is actually the hardest of the three, she's 13. Um, she said, she, we, we were having one of those moments where she was just fighting. And then she just had this moment where she's like, I want to change. And I, I didn't actually believe her, but I'm like, so do I. Trust me. I'm like, so do I. Because I, I sometimes freak yeah. out. And since that moment, it, I won't say it's like a light switched because certainly we have our moments, but it, it's not even correlated. Like she's, she's changed a lot and her energy's changed and she's working on a lot. Uh, and I don't equate it to just one moment. We we had a lot of great peak experiences during that that uh, six weeks. But if you have hope and if you have a goal and if you have a reason, it it, it allows you to 
it allows you to work at it. It allows you to keep trying at it and being okay having bad days and 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 working through that process because there's a reason to do it. If 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 you don't have hope in it, there's no real reason to to go through that hell. And so you just disengage. It goes straight back to pathways thinking, just that there probably is a path. Who knows what it is? We'll find it though. Okay. I I like that. And the pathway thinking, that's the whole hacking thing. Like that's what hackers do. We just keep going. There's a path that you didn't think about, and that's how we hack it. That 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 was we were talking before we hit record about my next book. It's like there's lots of paths to getting whatever health thing you want to do. Just pick the one that's the shortest path because, well, I don't know, maybe you're lazy like I am. But I think you I think you dig the study in pathways thinking. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to read that. Uh, I probably will regret There's a lot not of reading literature it. on pathways thinking. Okay, I'm I'm going to dig into it. Thank you. And you you talk about some threats to your future self in the book, and I, I really like your structuring. By the way, just as a as a fellow author, nice nice job on framing it because it, it's very hard, especially in a book that could be this mushy but isn't. So you've got like threats to future self and you got truths to future self and we don't have time in an interview to get, you know, tell me the whole book. That's why you buy the audible. (laughs) But um, by the way, did you read your own audible? Yeah. And it's a short audible, by the way, four hours, two minutes. Only four hours. I I purposely carved this thing down, man. Like one of my favorite concepts lately is called constraint theory. Have you studied constraint theory much? I only bring this up because there's a quote within constraint theory that a system is only perfect when there's nothing left to take away. Oh, so this um, is the Mark Twain quote. If I'd had more time, I'd have written less. And I, I'm yeah, with you yeah. there. I yeah. love that. So this one took a lot of stripping away the David, in other words, you know, like so many drafts. How much can you take away? It's a, it was, you know, so yeah, perfection is not when there's nothing left to add, but when there's nothing left to remove. And that, I tried that with this book. Um, so yeah. So four hours is impressive. And reading your own book it is tough. And then, in your truth, truth number seven is your view of God impacts your future self. And you mentioned that having a religious practice and a spiritual practice helped you avoid addiction when you're growing up in a, in a messed up house with addiction, right? So how did you feel as an author about bringing you know, your view of God in the book? Is this your view of God or you're saying that the reader's individual view of God impacts their personal self? Like, like unpack what God has to do with your future self in the context um, of, you know, I'll tell you, and I, I will say this was, I was very hesitant to put this in a book like this a hundred percent, but it's I also risky. thought I would, yeah. Oh, hundred percent. I'm fine with that. Um, I also felt I would be intellectually dishonest if I didn't include this section in the book. Um, I start this section by saying, let me be direct and honest. I'm not trying to convince you whether or not you should believe in God. That is not the purpose of the section. Um, the, the purpose of the section is just to highlight that whatever views or lack of views you hold of God are going to directly influence your views of your own future self because views of God are pretty existential. So a lot of people, their views of their future self are impacted by their belief system about God. They may believe that there's a heaven and a hell. As an example, they may believe in reincarnation, whatever it is, but whatever views they hold in there, or, and even if you believe there is no God, I have no problem with that, by the way. Uh, all I'm saying is, is whatever view you hold of God is going to impact what you believe to be your own trajectory. Do you disagree with that? Um, I believe that your view of whether you want to call it a god, gods, or your spiritual view of the world has a massive impact on your future. It doesn't necessarily have to be god It impacts how you view your own future, right? Yeah. That's pretty much the point here. Okay, but it's not, you know, join my church. (laughs) 
No, no, no. <laughs> it it oh, doesn't no. come across that way at all. But it was it was uh, a a courageous move as an author in order to say, I'm going to include this just like any academic says, yeah, I'm going to study this massive thing that people have been doing since we have recorded history, but it's not scientific. So I can't look at it or I risk my tenure. So unless you're a religious studies professor and you talk about that in the context of medicine or health or psychology, you almost automatically become fringe, even though science is supposed to be about curiosity and measuring what works. And honestly, if convincing yourself that a leprechaun tucks you in every night and it makes you a billionaire and happy, well, shit, then, you know, I'll hail the leprechaun and that's okay. Yeah. No, hey, I don't think Hay House would have let me, uh, you know, proselyte to a certain religion in this book. Um, But uh, I, I do, I do lay out, um, generally speaking, you know, some of my own views of God uh, and how those impact my own view of my future self and how I view other people based on that view of God. Uh, I lay out a few classic frameworks of God and just say, here's the psychological impact on your future self with this framework. Here's the psychological impact on on your, psycho- on your psychology with this framework. Um, and just show that, look, I, I, everyone has their own views of all this stuff. But I invite introspection to say whatever existential or big picture views you have of God, non-God, multiple gods, that's going to have some bearing on how you view your your future. Um, and it really connects with the idea that whatever view you have of your trajectory essentially is a direct impact on your own identity, uh, that your identity and perceived trajectory are are completely connected. Okay. I, um, I like that a lot. All right, now I got to ask you this. You've got seven threats to your future self. Uh, you've got seven steps for being your future self. You've got seven truths about your future self. All right. Were there actually seven of each, or did you do like mental gymnastics to make it seven, seven, seven? And why seven? No reason for seven. It was actually originally 10, 10, 10, just because. It just worked out um, to be seven. Okay. <laughs> That's cool. Well, I whittled it down. Um, so, yeah, originally this book was. So I, I had worked on this book for like three years, but I wrote Who Not How and The Gap and the Gain in between. Um, I came across the research initially when I was writing Personality Isn't Permanent. And I was like, what the heck? I didn't even know this stuff existed. Um, and so I'd been messing with this stuff for a long time, and I knew I wanted to um, have it be closer to a blog post style book where it was like concept, 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 make it really easy on the reader. Um, and so I was just thinking 10, 10, 10 would be really easy, but it just felt, I was just like, 10 too big. And so I then tried to chunk it down to eight. And I was like, I, I could chunk this down even more. Like some of these are two, some of these ideas are actually just one idea or I could merge them. And so seven, seven, seven just felt smooth. Um, so, uh, so I mean, I, I, there's a statistical, uh, there's a really famous statistics quote that says, um, no models are true, but some models are useful, you know? And so everything's a model, and this is just a model. Uh, it's not true. It's, it could be useful to some people. Uh, it's just a model. It's just a perspective. Um, I, I do think models and frameworks are how most people learn most quickly. Uh, I agree. So that, that's why anyone who listens to me for more than five minutes probably hears me talk about the four F words as my model for decision-making that's unconscious in humans and, and how you would want to you know, re, retweak that. So I, just, I do think you did a great job on on framing it so you can figure it out so like here's what's likely to mess you up 
Uh, here are the things you need to know. And then here's the steps to actually using the things you need to know. So if there ever was an actionable book, and I think that comes because you learn to write not as an author, but you learn to write as a medium blogger. And, and like attention span has gone down even since I started writing where the long form journalism, where you write your know, three or 4,000 word article about all the you know, 34 studies supporting mycotoxins in coffee, even if other podcasters who make money selling moldy coffee tell you it's not true uh, kind of post. And now it's down to like a 15 second TikTok and you have to dance while you have three bullet points and you point at them. <laughs> and I'm, I mean, I'll, I'll admit I'm struggling, not just with the dancing part, I can twerk pretty well. But, you know, I just, I'm like, how do I pack all this crap like there's so much here and I can boil it down but at a certain point you boil it down and all that's left is like one amino acid and you're like I wanted to give you a peptide like seriously yeah 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 I, well I know and when you're writing a book it's like you have volumes you you want to share I mean to write to write a book you must read a hundred almost right mm-hmm uh, and it's so it, it's it's been a challenge, and I think because instead of saying I'm going to start with writing books and then make it to long form and then get to short form, I mean even like Tim Ferriss just funded a um, a scholarship for long form journalism, right? And you get guys like Stephen Kotler, who's a friend, like most of his career was long form and then became books. Uh, so I just I, your style is very different. It's refreshing. It, it's young, but it's very readable uh, in um, you, in the book. So I think you've you know you've you've done you've done something good here, and it's a little bit different than your other ones. How did you evolve? Just this is me being a selfish author, wondering how you did it. Um, how did you evolve your style from the last book to this book? Was there like a conscious decision? Was there an advisor? So, so do you want me to kind of explain the process? Yeah, a what, bit, what's the evolution different? Of it? Like, like I can, it feels different, but what, I don't know what you did. Like any, there's a lot of authors that listen to the show. So just, just kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. give me the 30 second, how do you evolve your writing teaching? Uh, so admittedly, I've spent a lot of time working with Tucker Max. Um, Tucker got heavily involved in the collaboration with Dan. Um, it was kind of a three or four way collaboration. And so he's coached me a lot through writing who, not how, and then writing the gap in the game. And he's helping me a little bit on 10 X is easier than two X. Um, he's less technical helping me now, like with, with who, not how he was very like in the weeds, like we were talking through structures and stuff like that. And he helped me think differently about structures. And so I actually really am proud of the structure of who, not how, uh, even the gap in the game, the gap in the game is only a two part book and it's got three chapters for each. Um, so he's helped me think that stuff through. Um, with Be Your Future Self Now, I think the thing I did differently about this book, because it's probably, the gap in the gain is pretty short. So who not, I would say the who not how is probably 45,000 words. Gap in the gain is about 48,000 words. This book's closer to about 40. Um, and I'm pushing like 75 to 90. So these are really short. They're short. They're short. Okay. Um my Audible book, Audibles uh, with Dan are always two hours longer because we do um, free-flowing interviews between the chapters. So like, I'll read a chapter of the audiobook and then I'll interview Dan about it and we'll have like a 20-minute conversation. And so there's two hours of interviews um, that are bonus material in the Audibles with Dan. So that makes the book seem longer than it is. Like this book, it's actually way shorter than it looks um, because we have, we have like 50 full-page quotes in here from Dan. This is the gap in the game. Okay. This book has 60 pictures from gaping void in it. So mm. it actually looks bigger than it is. And I, and I purposefully, this is something I learned from medium. One of the things I love about medium is, is and I don't write there anymore, but aesthetically it had a lot of white space on the paper on, on the screen. So if you're reading a medium article, 
the font is pretty big and there's a ton of white space. And so it's just aesthetically pleasing. It's easy to read. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of words on your face. And so I, with who, not how I, they put way too many words on each page. Honestly, uh, I just didn't like it. And so I told them with gap and gain and then with this one, way more white space, put two thirds, the words on each page. It's easier on the read. It's sexier. It's just, it just looks better. Um, and so that's kind of more design thinking with the writing itself. I think what I learned that's different with this is I'm very much a conceptual thinker. I'm really bad at thinking stories. Like I, I love just tell me a theory, tell me a model, tell me an idea. I'm just going to think through that. And that's what I want to talk about. But the thing that I've been forced to get better at is driving with the story, finding really interesting stories and then using the research to make it really thick um, and then just adding elements. And so I think that that's what I'm sort of getting better at. Um, Interesting. So, so there's, there's an old collaboration with like Ryan holiday, who's one of the masters at that, like he and Robert green, like he learned it from Robert green and did it with Robert green and 48 laws of power. So I like Ryan's writing. There's always a story in it as well as Robert green's. And then Ryan and Tucker worked together for a while because I hired both of them to help me on the bulletproof diet, just to understand the marketing. Um, this is, you know, I'd already written it, but I just wanted to make sure I was going to get it out there. And then Ryan had to go do something. So I ended up working with Tucker on it. Um, and then not a lot came out of that. I think he's talking about still figuring out his, all of his models and things, having done a couple books, but you fast forward, that's almost 10 years ago. So you fast forward and you look at all of the, the transformation, but it's, it's neat. Your book just feels different. And I think it's, like you said, you, you looked at the layout and the design and I think Hay House supported you on that, but most publishers don't. So our listeners could be getting either really bored by publishers and authors and whatever stuff. But it, if you've ever thought about how, the book you're holding gets made. Uh, I believe that that reading a book that's a worthy book, it's installing an app in your consciousness. It, it actually changes your lens and the way you process reality. Um, and that's what I, I'll explain it to my kids. It's like, well, no, that's why you have to read that one. Like, that's an app that you need to have installed so that you know that and you can use it and take action on it. Uh, and there's there's a thought that goes through it, and we can do this podcast. We could publish the transcript and put you know, pretty fonts on it, but it, the information density here is not as dense as reading your book because your book is like the considered effort of 10,000 plus hours of research plus all the boiling down and structuring and framing and all that, and then you pick this thing up, and like, oh, it was a four-hour audible, but it, it's like Everclear instead of beer. It is what a, a, a book is like that, and so I just want listeners to kind of think of it. Every time you absorb a book, instead of a podcast, even this one, which I do my best to make information dense, you're getting the highest ROI on every second, on every word. At least I believe that. But you're changing the layout so it's more absorbable probably increases ROI instead of decreases it, which is a cool hack. Yeah, I, I, I'm a big believer in uh, just working through over and over. I think that's probably the thing that I'm I'm more aggressive at in my, my later writing. Uh, I write less, but I think better hopefully is i work through the i work through the content probably 10 times more but in faster feedback loops like i'll work on the the outline for a year and then once i feel like i've got it and i've thought through it i've connected all the dots the writing comes really easy and i'd rather spend an extra five passes on the outline just seeing if the ordering's right or if i can chop it or so yeah i i love just I just love uh, structuring and connecting dots or creating models. It's uh, 
it's fun. I will say one more thing about this book versus even Gap and Gain, which Gap and Gain only came out last October, was I did have one or two additional editors of this book um, that have different angles. So like I, even with like less than a week left on this book, I brought someone in and had them read through it and they chopped, they cleaned it up and I, it was, the book was done. Hay House had fully accepted, but they went through it one more time and just did one other cleaning. And I was shocked at how much cleaner and just more chiseled it was with just one more pass from a different angle from a, a really good writer gone through it. And so, uh, I, I felt like, holy cow, that one pass that might've taken it from like, you know, like there's a big difference between something being like 99% good versus a hundred percent. Like, you know, that 1% is a, is really hard to reach when you get to that place. And I was like, this book is 20, maybe, maybe 20 times better simply because of that 1% better. Well, um, congratulations on, on a, on a cool book. So you're, you're standing out because you're publishing quickly and publishing with density, um, of content, but enough space to make it more absorbable. So it, it seems like it's kind of an emerging new look and feel for a way to absorb information. Because if you're listening, you're going, well, hold on, what's the book again? It's called Be Your Future Self Now by Ben Hardy. And it's benjaminhardy.com. Do you put, you actually, now you're Benjamin Hardy. I always know you as Ben, but are you going by Benjamin now on your, in person? No, or is that just I've just had the, we- I've had the website benjaminhardy.com ever since I started. Um, so benjaminhardy.com is just what I've had. Benjamin or Ben, uh, this is, it, it's a cool book, man. And, and the idea of, of considering how you relate to your future self is awesome. And it could easily just be an academic, like, yeah, yeah, I should do that. But I really like there's actionable steps uh, that we didn't really get into in the interview just because there, there isn't time to do the whole scope of the book. But the idea of having empathy for your future self is being like, you have no freaking clue. I think for anyone under 35, uh, you're listening to this. When I, <laughs> uh, when I was, let's see, yeah, when I was 35, I don't think I'd even started blogging. Yeah, no, I, I hadn't started blogging. Uh, I was a Silicon Valley guy. I was going to be a CTO and co-founder, and I was CTO and co-founder of tech startups and all that. And I was you know, going to be an old grizzled CTO, and that was that. Right? Maybe I'll you know teach tech at some point. I would have never in a billion gazillion years thought that I would ever be in Vogue magazine as a fat computer hacker or that I would do anything <laughs> that I'm doing. Like, like there was just a zero chance. I would have put all of the Bitcoin that I didn't have because it wasn't invented yet uh, against, uh, against, I would have bet against myself being this. So you just don't know. But even if you don't know, you can still pick a future direction and at least you'll move. And if you're open to multiple paths, um, ultimately, I would I would suggest that creating a future self that includes a goal of happiness instead of wealth <laughs> or fame uh, or power might be a better goal. Would you agree from what you've seen so far? Yeah, and I think that that's a, a healthy, natural. Yeah. I think that um, there's actually a really good book called "The Finding Meaning in the Second Half of Life" um, by like I think it was a Jungian psychologist. It's a pretty interesting book, but. He talks about how the first half is all about acquisition, you know, and about material and about social, whereas the second half and whatever age you reach that is more uh, about relinquishing, letting go. It's more of the spiritual, the inner development and uh, more of seeking and finding happiness. I think I think in the last year, I finally started to cross that path. 
Yeah, uh, we, we all get there. And, and it, it's true that there's Ericksonian stages of adult development, which you've probably studied in, in all of your work. I, I, as, I, as I move along through a very extended lifespan, I'm definitely seeing, uh, seeing you know, that Erickson, Erickson had something right, but it feels like they're getting stretched out because we actually are living longer than we, we, we thought we would. Our definition of elderly just shifted in the last 25 years to add 10 years to what it takes to be elderly. So, you know, maybe when you're 18, uh, 30 or 40 years ago, it's more like being 21 now. And either that or it's that same thing that as people age, they're like young people these days. I have no idea what's, which of those is true, but there's something going on. But how, whatever age you are, uh, I do think that there's uh, there's something about choosing your future self. And as Dan Sullivan has taught both of us, it doesn't matter if you're 70. Choose your future self because Dan is a bad guy. That guy's almost that. 80 at this point, yeah. man. Yeah, and he thinks baby. he's going to live to one fifty six. Yep, that was his goal last time I interviewed him, and I teased him about being a small time thinker. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but, yeah, guys, BenjaminHardy.com, a really worthy book, and just a, a guy who's is making tracks and has has had some big books already, and just some good thinking, and that's what it's really all about. So thank you for tuning in today to listen. And thank you for choosing a future self uh, who's maybe less of a douchebag than I was. Uh, That would be helpful. (laughs) Have a great day. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.